Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 128, Porphyry and the Barbarians, Ethnicity, Religious Practice, and Esoteric Interpretation. In this episode, we're going to be looking at Porphyry's esoteric wisdom tradition, or rather traditions, because Porph finds wisdom in all manner of places, some of them familiar to our listeners. Plato and Pythagoras, Homer, approved ethnoi of wise barbarians, and so on. And others pretty much new to our discussion of ancient Platonism, notably oracles and astrological divination. We talked about astrological divination last time. Now, Porphyry is pretty clued in to the differences between peoples and philosophic schools, which are for him kind of the same thing. So it makes sense to talk about different traditions in the plural, even though, as we shall see, he does have a discourse of a perennial truth, which might theoretically be accessible by many traditions. He's very simplistic in his reading of ethnic wisdom in the sense that for him, an, an ethnos has a philosophy. So there's a philosophy of the Egyptians, there's a philosophy of the Jews, and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, he's very aware of the differences in different peoples. He's a very ethnographically uh, interested thinker, as we've discussed in the podcast so far. Now, in this episode, we're also going to want to examine the esoteric hermeneutics in which Porphyry reads this multifaceted wisdom tradition. This is fascinating stuff. So fascinating, in fact, that we're going to begin to explore it here, but we shall need to devote an entire episode to Porphyry's greatest surviving work of esoteric hermeneutics, On the Cave of the Nymphs, where we will see the doors of interpretation blown completely off their hinges in one of our finest works of esoteric hermeneutics to survive from antiquity, rivaled only perhaps by Book 5 of Clement of Alexandria's Stromates, which we talked about earlier in the podcast. This is the fine wine of subtle, hidden meanings. Last but not least in this episode, we're also going to be looking at the one type of barbarian tradition that Porphyry really does think is, well, barbaric. I refer, of course, to Christianity. And as we shall see, Porphyry's attack on the Christians' uses of esoteric hermeneutics in reading their own scriptures is very fascinating indeed with regard to the history of Western esotericism. As we emphasized in episode 99, Esoteric interpretation could be, and was in practice, a weapon of ideological warfare between different competing groups in late antiquity. Porphyry Against the Christians is a textbook case of this, and especially interesting because Porphyry isn't just saying they're wrong and we are right. He's using what you might call genuine critical appraisal of their works, arguing for things like anachronisms, which prove that these so-called ancient texts of the Christians aren't really the ancient sources that they say they are, and that sort of thing. Now, before we get into it, let's talk a little bit about two sets of categories which will feature prominently in the discussion in this episode. I refer to Hellene versus Barbarian and Philosophy versus Religion. We've talked about both of these sort of dyads in the past on the podcast, but it's worth going over this material again just to kind of nuance what we're going to be talking about. 
So we've been using the term barbarian in this podcast to translate the Greek word barbaros. And we've been doing it pretty casually, which is probably a mistake, as some alert listeners have pointed out. You might want to check out episode 8 of the podcast, where we introduce the ideas of Hellenism as a cultural construct, and discuss some of the ways in which Hellenes approached the thoughts of others who were, well, not Hellenes. And the word for all of these peoples was barbaroi in Greek. Barbaros just means non-Greek. Well, it doesn't just mean that, but that's its basic meaning. It actually originally meant primarily non-Greek speaking. And we think the term came about from Hellenes listening to foreign languages, and it all just sounded like bar-bar-bar. So something like foreign jibber-jabber, in other words. Barbaros does not mean barbarian, like we mean it when we use the term in English nowadays. When we talk about a barbarian or someone being barbaric, we usually either mean someone who acts in a way we think is morally bad, or someone who runs around wearing lots of furs and wielding a battle axe, or both. So the first type of barbarian, the person whose behavior we feel superior to, is a term that we just have no use for here on the Schwepp. It's always used in a kind of jingoistic way and has no place in historical analysis. So that the English think the French are barbaric because they eat horses and the Vietnamese are barbaric because they eat dogs. But the Indians think the English are barbaric because they eat cows. At the end of the day, it's everyone eating animals and I don't see any real moral differences here. Now, did the ancient Hellenes use the term in this way to mean barbarian, therefore barbaric? Sometimes. However, in our era, the cosmopolitan Greco-Roman world of the 3rd century, and note here that the Romans themselves can be barbarians or not in a given Greek author, depending on the context. So Plutarch sometimes will call them barbaroi, and sometimes he'll make them all into kind of notional Hellenes. In our era, barbaros definitely does not always mean something univocally negative, especially among Platonist perennialists like Porphyry, who have the usual respect for the ancient Barbaroi, like the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, and remember Porphyry is a Phoenician, <laughs> as well as a Hellene, the Chaldeans, the Hebrews, and we'll talk about all these ethnoi later in this episode, he respects all of them. So as we've seen in Plutarch, Numenius, and many other Platonist perennialist thinkers, wise barbarians are an important part of the cultural landscape and the lineage of truth. So by barbarian, we just mean non-Greek in this context, right? As for the Conan-style barbarians who run around shouting and rushing into battle, uh, the term just doesn't really have that valence at all in ancient Greek. There were barbaros peoples who were doing that sort of thing in our period, notably the Germanic peoples along the Rhine frontier of the Roman realm, who didn't have proper cities and did indeed run around half-naked through the woods wielding battle axes from time to time. But at the same time, the Syrians or the Parthians or the Indians are all barbaroi par excellence, and they laid claim to ancient lineages from people who'd been living in cities with a high level of cultural sophistication way longer than the Greeks, and the Greeks knew this. So barbaros has nothing to do with wearing furs and shouting gutturally. So when we say barbarian here on the Schwepp, we're alluding to a complex cultural label, which does involve othering. It involves saying there's us and them, and the us is always going to be some, someone identifying as a Hellene. 
But this doesn't necessarily imply a negative appraisal of the barbarians. We've seen this, for example, in Clement of Alexandria, a very Hellenized Christian philosopher who is happy to call Christianity a barbarian philosophy. And we know that the audience that he's aiming for is Greek-speaking and even Hellenic in the sense of deep cultural trainings. They're expected to respond when Clement cites Euripides and Homer and so forth. But we can also understand here that the barbarian philosophy is being presented as something the Hellenized audience had better get with and quick because Clement is a committed Christian. So there's a lot of complexity in the ways these identities are constructed and manipulated. It's also maybe worth emphasizing here that these concepts of Hellene and barbarian have almost nothing to do with modern concepts of race. I'm not being PC. I'm just stating the facts. And if proof were needed, uh, Porphyry is the proof. Porphyry is a Phoenician by birth and probably by mother tongue. But he not only became a Hellene through education, he became a Hellene who felt perfectly at home talking about non-Hellenes, including Phoenicians, as Barbaroi. In his letter to Anibo, in which he's addressing a notional Egyptian priest, he repeatedly contrasts our ideas, meaning Greek ideas, with Egyptian ideas. We think this, and you think this. He's identifying as thoroughly Hellenic. Again, Hellenes are made, not born. Okay, what about philosophy versus religion in our discussion here? Well, philosophia is a concept in antiquity, and different people define it differently. See episode 15 for a basic introduction to some of the meanings of this term in our period. But religion is not a concept in antiquity. This isn't to say that we can't justifiably speak about ancient religion, but we have to be aware that what we mean by religion, and the term is commonly understood in English as to do primarily with belief, this is the result of Protestantism more than anything else, this doesn't have much relevance for antiquity. Traditional religion in antiquity doesn't really have that much to do with belief in the gods, but everything to do with practices aimed at the gods, sacrifices, oracles, and other forms of divine human interaction. Now, this is starting to change precisely in our period with the rise of late antique religions like Orthodox Christianity or like the kind of Platonist philosophy that Porphyry holds to, in which philosophic encounters with the highest divine principles, the noetic gods and the noose itself and the one, is really the true religion. It's still pretty much the case, even among Christian writers for whom holding the correct opinion or belief, the orthodoxa, is a matter of salvation. Cultic matters like baptism and liturgy and so forth still are really at the forefront of a lot of the debates going on. So if our working definition of religion is ways in which humans interact with divine entities, then it's important to realize that all Platonist philosophy, as the late Platonists understand it, is religion, is in fact the true religion, religion shorn of its irrational aspects and brought into line with how reality really is. Another way of putting this is that while not all philosophy is religious to these guys, so for example, Porphyry's work on logic doesn't really need to be understood with any explicit reference to gods or daimonis, nevertheless, all religion falls underneath the umbrella of philosophy. So in this episode, we shall be discussing 
some aspects of Porphyry's views on what we would call religion and the religions of other peoples than the Greeks. But really what we're going to be talking about is his views on cult, as historians of religion would put it, on ritual practices. His metaphysical views and his ideas of salvation and communion with the higher divine principles of reality should and can also be discussed as religious, but he would just consider this philosophy. I hope that's clear. Now, we've done an awful lot of talking about categories for thinking about antiquity here. I hope it's not out of place, but it's good to review these ideas from time to time as the podcast moves forward. Now, let's get to Porphyry's wisdom tradition. No one is going to deny that the chief place Porphyry looks for wisdom is in the pages of Plato, read through the selective hermeneutics of late Platonism and probably through specific choices made by his teachers, Plotinus and Longinus, if Longinus was indeed his teacher. But this isn't the rhetoric that Porphyry gives us about where wisdom comes from. He does, of course, praise Plato very highly and talk about Plato as, you know, being right about everything and that sort of thing. But the rhetoric, as will not surprise keen listeners to this podcast, is one of reading a tradition the wisdom of the ancients, the opinions of the Greeks and barbarians, and so forth, a somewhat amorphous group of textual and traditional authorities. For the sake of discussion, we can divide this tradition into two parts, Greek and barbarian. As we shall see, Porphyry interestingly privileges barbarian wisdom quite highly, even going so far as to quote an oracle of Apollo, which says that the Greeks have fallen away from the proper path toward the gods, while certain barbarian nations have not done so. Nevertheless, he rates traditional sources of Greek wisdom very highly, not least among them the great Homer. Homer is a prime place to find philosophic wisdom, as it turns out, as On the Cave of the Nymphs shows, and our fragments of On the Sticks corroborate. We know that Longinus composed a treatise entitled, with this is a lost treatise sadly, on whether Homer was a philosopher. Porphyry lets us know in no uncertain terms that yes, he was, if the title of Porphyry's Lost on the philosophy of Homer is anything to go by. Now, Porphyry often talks about Homer's work as simply the ancient wisdom, thus assimilating it to a fuzzy, open-ended Hellenic tradition. Keen listeners at this point might assume that in order to find Platonist wisdom in Homer, Porphyry must assume that Homer wrote esoterically. Gentle listener, you are correct if you assumed this. And in the case of Porphyry, we're fortunate not to have to assume anything because we have an explicit testimony that lays out that Homer was an esotericist. Specifically, he played his theological teachings close to the chest, so he was esoteric about matters of theology. And he was especially esoteric even among the other ancients, all of whom spoke in Enigmata. Here is a fragment from On the Sticks in Lamberton's excellent translation. The only thing I would change in this translation is Lamberton's translating Enigma as riddle, as we've seen in the podcast before. I think a better term of translation for Enigma in the Platonist lexicon is esoteric discourse, because the implication is not just that you're telling a riddle, but that you have a secret meaning that has to be hidden from the masses. Let's get to the quote. The poet's thought, that's Homer's thought, the poet's thought is not, as one might think, easily grasped, 
for all the ancients expressed matters concerning the gods and daimones through riddles, dia enigmaton, but Homer went to even greater lengths to keep these things hidden and refrained from speaking of them directly, but rather used those things he did say to reveal other things beyond their obvious meanings. Of those who have undertaken to develop and expound those things he expressed through secondary meanings, de hypernoias, the Pythagorean Cronius seems to have accomplished the task most ably, but on the whole, he fits extraneous material to the texts in question, since he is unable to apply Homer's own. And he has not endeavored to accommodate his ideas to the poet's words, but rather to accommodate the poet to his own ideas. End of quote. Now, Cronius, you'll recall, was a colleague of Numenius, about whom we know very little, but obviously he was doing some esoteric reading of Homer. Now, anyone reading On the Cave of the Nymphs will suspect that Porphyry is himself more than a little guilty of fitting, quote, extraneous material to the text in question, since he's unable to apply Homer's own, and he has not endeavored to accommodate his ideas to the poet's words, but rather to accommodate the poet to his own ideas. In other words, no one is going to read On the Cave of the Nymphs and think that Homer really meant to say what Porphyry thinks he means to say. That being said, however, Lamberton, in his superb study, Homer the Theologian, says of Porphyry's reading of Homer, quote, What most strikingly distinguishes his response from most modern readings is that he apparently assumed that the Iliad and Odyssey could sustain multiple levels of meaning simultaneously and without contradiction, end of quote. In other words, Lamberton reads Porphyry reading Homer as a genuine forerunner of modern critical interpretation, though one which endowed the text with more meaning than it can really bear. So one might want to go further and call Porphyry a postmodern reader of Homer, except, of course, that postmodernists don't believe in gods, right? Nevertheless, this approach to the text as having utterly overdetermined meanings is very typical of postmodern ways of reading texts. Anyway, in Homer, we have one important part of the Palai Sophia, or ancient wisdom, for Porphyry. Who else might fit the bill here as Palai Sophia? Well, Orpheus, whose opinions are described as the wisdom of the Hellenes in one fragment. So Orpheus speaks for us Greeks. And Orpheus has, it turns out, some fascinating teachings about Zeus um, and how Zeus is true, actually the noose of the cosmos who gives rise to the cosmos within himself. Okay, so this is reading poetry, theological poetry, in a mythic vein that does not, on the surface, have anything to do with Platonist metaphysics and finding therein very clear, very Porphyrian Platonist metaphysics. Okay, what about the tradition that we know as philosophy proper? We know that Porphyry wrote a surviving life of Pythagoras, so surely Pythagoras is an important link in the chain of wisdom. Yes, but Porphyry doesn't go all in on Pythagoras, like Numenius before him and Iamblichus during his lifetime, or even Plotinus, because remember, Plotinus doesn't go on about Pythagoras all the time, but he does mention Pythagoras and Pherecides of Syros as the founders of the tradition of the Spudaioi, the serious philosophers. So he accords them a very important place, if only notional. Um, in terms of Porphyry's take on Pythagoras, I think Omara gives a good summary, which we can quote. 
Porphyry, then, is not a Pythagoreanizing Platonist, i.e. one who singles Pythagoras out as the fountainhead of all true Platonic philosophy, but rather a universalizing Platonist. He finds his Platonism both in Pythagoras and in many other quarters. End of quote. Now, if you doubt this, I think the, the many different quarters in which uh, he finds his wisdom will become clear by the end of this episode. But sticking with philosophy for a moment longer, there is, of course, Plato. Um, Porphyry, like Plotinus, read Plato all the time, knows his Plato. And like the Middle Platonists that we've looked at in this podcast, even when Porphyry wasn't reading Plato, he was reading Plato. What I mean by this is, for instance, when we learn that Orpheus's theological poetry contains a teaching about the auto-generation of the noetic god, Porphyry is blatantly finding in Orpheus teachings which derive from Plato, as read by the tradition. The same pretty much goes for his reading of all the barbarians to which we now turn. We noted the oracle of Apollo, which mentioned that the way to the gods is difficult, and the Greeks have strayed from it to some degree. But certain wise groups of barbarians have not. They would be the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, the Chaldeans, the Lydians, and the Hebrews. A lot had been made of Porphyry, the ethnographer. So what does he make of all these ethnoi, nations? At the beginning of De Abstinentia, his work on vegetarianism and similar topics, Porphyry proposes to proceed in his discussion of vegetarian, kata ethne, nation by nation. So this is, I'd say, a good indication of his approach to ethnos. Every ethnos has a kind of naively monolithic teaching. Now, no one's really going to believe this about a people nowadays. Are we really to think, for example, that the Egyptians thought the same way about matters of theology and philosophy, like all the Egyptians? We know for a fact that there were competing theogenies and uh, so-called theologies in traditional ancient, ancient, Middle Kingdom uh, Egyptian culture. But then in our era, we also have to add new religious movements like Hermitism to the mix in Egypt. But for Porphyry, there is simply an Egyptian teaching. He talks a lot about the Egyptians in various places, and not always uncritically. He's read a load of Chairamon, the Stoic esoteric reader whom we discussed in episode 44, who probably was himself an Egyptian, and seemingly takes Chiramon as really the source for all things Egyptian, and following Chiramon thinks that the Egyptians are a bunch of basically astrologer Stoics without a developed metaphysics. Nevertheless, they are good on astral matters, these Egyptians. However, they subscribe to a hardcore astral determinism, which, as we saw in the last episode, is not a view Porphyry takes. He's very interested in astrology, but he does not think that we, everything is fated by the stars. While some things are determined by the star gods, others are up to us. So the Egyptians are wrong here. Just to be clear, we don't actually think that all or even most Egyptians were hardcore fatalists in this or any period. My guess here is that Porphyry is alluding to either some technical hermetica, the Hermes book or similar, or just to the reputation of the Egyptian Hermes as father of astrology, and of specifically the kind of fatalist astrology that 
uh, we associate with authors like Vettius Valens, who is constantly referring to his Egyptian sources, right? So he might not even know technical Hermetica, but he knows the reputation of Hermes and reads that as hardcore fatalist astrology. Now, let's turn to some of the other wonderful ethnoi Porphyry talks about. He includes the Persians, stroke the Magoi, in his lineage of wise peoples in various different fragments. And this is somewhat unusual because the Persians don't usually make these lists among Platonists, but it's very interesting to us because by the Persians, what Porphyry seems to mean is the cult of Mithras, which for Porphyry is an esoteric cult that teaches metaphysical truths through, you guessed it, enigmata. Uh, specifically, the Magoi are vegetarians in the De Abstinentia because they hold the belief known from Pythagoras that human souls reincarnate into both human and animal bodies. And you can't go eating uh, anything that has a human soul in it, right? But this teaching is also revealed esoterically in the Mithraic cult. Now, more on this next time when we talk about the On the Cave of the Nymphs, because that's where we get seriously into Mithraism stroke, the beliefs of the Persians. Now, what about the Chaldeans? They make the list. They are wise barbarians. Now, this is another question we're going to have to defer for another episode. Why? Well, we have one John Lydus, a writer of the early 6th century CE, telling us that Porphyry wrote a commentary on some oracles, seemingly written by a father and son team, both called Julian. These are clearly the texts that we know as the Chaldean oracles, which we've spoken about before in the podcast. So he wrote a commentary on some oracles. Another author, Aeneas of Gaza, gives a somewhat different title of a work on the Chaldean oracles. And the Suda, the medieval East Roman encyclopedia, speaks of a work entitled On the Writings of Julian the Chaldean by Porphyry. So we have a number of very similar but different titles attributed to Porphyry, all being something like a commentary on the oracles, uh, the Chaldean oracles. Now, here's the problem. We have this fragmentary work called the Philosophy from Oracles, in which Porphyry cites oracles from all manner of different sources. And Levy and Pierre Adeau have argued that these references to a specific work on the Chaldean oracles are probably references to the philosophy from oracles, and that the philosophy from oracles contained loads of citations of the Chaldean oracles. Other scholars have argued against this, notably E.R. Dodds, and the whole question is so interesting, especially because there's so much in Porphyry's metaphysics, as far as we can reconstruct it, that may well be sort of Chaldean oracle-ish, especially the notorious intelligible triads, or noetic triads, that the whole question of Porphyry and the Chaldean oracles needs a special episode. Wouldn't you agree? So there you have it. We'll come back to the Chaldeans. Aside from the question of the Chaldean oracles, we don't get that much mention of the Chaldeans as a wise race of barbarians in Porphyry. Um, and there isn't really reason to think he associates oracular wisdom with them in particular, except for these few tantalizing fragments, which we shall try to um, thrash out in detail for those who are seriously hardcore about this stuff. Now, let's talk about the Jews. 
Porphyry really, really likes the Jews. As Johnson says in his 2013 study of Porphyry, quote, It is impossible to find a pagan intellectual before the age of Constantine with as consistent and overt sympathies for the Jews and their way of life as Porphyry, end of quote. Now, this is really interesting. What does Porphyry like about the Jews? Well, he likes the fact that, according to him, they are proper monotheists, and they reject lower cult. As we've seen, Porphyry seems to think that a lot of cult is addressed not toward the truest gods, the gods we should be concentrating on, i.e. the immaterial noetic gods, but lower daimones, beings that exist in the cosmos, who sort of want to pass themselves off as gods, but are not really that savory, right? The Jews reject all this stuff, and that's a really good thing about them. He also respects just the fact that they're so staunch in their Jewishness, which in a Greco-Roman mindset generally is seen as a good thing. You should be faithful to your ancestral ways. He also talks about the Essenes, uh, and this is actually one of our crucial testimonies to the mysterious Essenes, and he refers to them in the De Abstinentia as a kind of ascetic quasi-Pythagorean group who do philosophy, observe the stars, and pray to the highest god, the one of the Platonists, the father, as Porphyry is fond of calling him. He really, really likes the Jews, for these and seemingly other reasons. There is a theory that his wife, Marcella, was a Jew, and this theory goes back to one testimony in late antiquity, um, preserved in the so-called Tübingen Theosophy, but we don't have, aside from that one reference, any sure evidence. A bit of circumstantial evidence that we could bring to bear here and say he's definitely been exposed to a lot of Judaism in his time is that he clearly knows the Jewish scriptures. He cites stuff a lot from what we would call the Septuagint translation of the Jewish scriptures. So he knows his stuff, which would seem to imply to some people that Maybe this supports the idea that his wife is a Jew and he's sort of boning up on his Judaism because of that. But it's not proof. So the idea that Markella is a Jew and that's why Porphyry is so into this stuff is, uh, you know, something I want to put on the table, but it's not something we need to attach much weight to. Nevertheless, it's clear that a major part of his argument against the Christians is an old argument that already appeared in Celsus, whom you remember as the earliest known author who wrote a work against Christianity, right? We talked about it before. This is the argument that the Christians are basically turncoat Jews. Now, Porphyry uses this argument to the hilt in what survives of his against the Christians. But what's interesting here is that he's not just saying they're turncoat Jews, they're betraying their ancestral ways as an ethnos, and that's a bad thing, which it is in the eyes of most Greco-Roman peoples. He's saying this from a genuine respect for the Jews, seemingly. So it's not just a general turncoatism argument. It's a turncoatism argument based on the fact that you had a, not only a tradition, but a good tradition, a monotheist tradition, a philosophic tradition, and you turned your back on it, you scumbags. And this brings us to Porphyry on the Christians. Now, as we mentioned two episodes ago, we have a bunch of fragments, mostly from Eusebius, from a work which scholars call Against the Christians by Porphyry. 
not all scholars agree that this was a single anti-Christian tour de force. But we don't really care. When we say against the Christians in this episode, take it as given that we're just referring to this collection of extant fragments of porphyry uh, that Eusebius calls porphyry against the Christians. Whether or not this was a standalone work or whatever is not really our concern. What we want to get at is the kinds of arguments, especially ethnic arguments and arguments to do with esoteric interpretation that Porphyry brings to bear against these Christians. Now, as we mentioned in our special episode on the problem of the two origins, Porphyry says that he met when he was young a gentleman called Origen, Origen, Origenes, who was a Christian apologist using esoteric hermeneutics to make sense of the Christian scriptures. Now, whatever the relationship between this origin and the origin who was the student of Ammonius Saccas and colleague of Plotinus, it is clear that the origin Porphyry is saying he met when he was young must be our origin, the Christian origin, the author of the On First Principles, the man we discussed in episodes 97 to 99 of the podcast. So far, so good. Porphyry met him when he was young, probably at Caesarea. Now, this origin also wrote, gentle listeners will recall, the Contra Celsum, in which he rebutted the attacks of Celsus, again, a Middle Platonist author who'd written our earliest known polytheist attack on Christianity. So it's fitting that when Porphyry attacks Christianity, he goes for origin by name. Porphyry hates this guy. Incidentally, just to muddy the waters a little bit in a fun way, Eusebius also tells us that Porphyry had originally been a Christian. He was raised a Christian, but he had been embittered against the faith because he was beat up by a Christian mob in Caesarea in his youth. What do we make of this? We have absolutely no other evidence to confirm or deny this report, and whether or not we believe it is pretty much a judgment call. On the one hand, Eusebius, of course, has lots of motivation to dis Porphyry because Porphyry wrote against the Christians. And he might want to make him out as a kind of sour grapes Christian who turned against the faith because he, you know, got beat up by a bunch of Christians. So there is that motivation. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean the anecdote isn't true. Maybe it is. Now, the only other information which might be taken to support this, this idea of Christian uh, Porphyry getting beat up by a mob and then turning to philosophy, is that the surviving fragments of Against the Christians, and occasionally elsewhere, Porphyry really does show a lot of knowledge of the Christian scriptures. Now, mostly, he shows knowledge of the Jewish scriptures in their Greek translation, but seemingly also a little bit of the so-called New Testament material as well. Does this prove that Porphyry was a Christian in his youth? Absolutely not. We already know that he was very curious about all the other ethnoi. He was very ethnographically uh, interested. And we also know that he specifically held the Jews in high regard. So, of course, him knowing the, the Jewish scriptures is no stranger in a way than him knowing Homer, right? Uh, especially because the Jewish scriptures have been for hundreds of years a well-known Greek book in the form of the Septuagint. A lot of uh, Jews were reading their scriptures in Greek, including Philo of Alexandria, whom we discussed in the podcast. So he can read this stuff. He reads it esoterically as hiding deeply monist or monotheist Platonist metaphysics. 
and Bob's your uncle. As for his knowledge of the Christian scriptures, he might have simply read them as research for his expose of Christianity's essential badness, right? If you're going to refute these people, why not spend a few hours, read the short and rather simplistic uh, body of scriptures they have, take a few notes, and then you can write a really scathing expose. At any rate, we had to mention that anecdote. The idea that Porphyry may have been raised Christian is a very fascinating one and adds interesting dimensions to our understanding of his ethnographic project in general, and also his attack on the Christians in specific. But unfortunately, the evidence, like all the evidence that we covered in our episode on the two origins, is so problematic and difficult to decide upon that we have to just mention it and say we have no idea if it's true or not. Now, what are the reasons Porphyry gives for attacking Christianity? We're going to summarize them and uh, without going deeply, deeply, deeply into all the fragments and considering all the possible nuances and how we reconstruct arguments that are only, you know, given in distorted paraphrase by a Christian author and all that kind of stuff. Just get it. Some of the stuff we know is pretty much the lines of attack he took. He has, I would say, two main arguments uh, and then one cool esoteric argument, which we'll devote a bit more time to. So the main argument, number one, is one that would hold a lot of weight in the eyes of the average Greco-Roman, not to mention a Platonist intellectual. Christians are turncoat Jews. We've mentioned this already. The idea here is that whatever you think about the Jews, and many Greco-Romans despised the Jews, and many had a certain, you know, sort of low-level anti-Semitic contempt for them, many just got on fine with them, it doesn't really matter, whatever you think about them, you have to admit that they are A, ancient, and B, faithful to their ancestral customs. The fact that they're willing to die for their ancestral customs in repeated brutal Roman suppressions is proof, proof were needed, right? In other words, this, at least, is worthy of our respect, their antiquity and their faithfulness to their ancestral customs. This is just stuff that Romans loved. The Christians are then cast by Porphyry as betrayers of this ancient ethnic tradition. They are members of an ethnos who have betrayed their teaching and become this new thing called Christian. So that's just contemptible for Porphyry. That's contemptible to, I'd say, most Greco-Romans, but it's especially contemptible to Porphyry because he is really positive about the Jews, right? So you're not just leaving behind your tradition, you're leaving behind a very cool tradition. So far, so good. We saw in episode 99 that Celsus had raised quite similar attacks on the Christians. But what is different in Porphyry, I would say, is that he really likes the Jews. Celsus doesn't seem to think the Jews are particularly spectacular, but Porphyry is really starting from this philo-Semitic um, position of appreciation of Jewish theology, as he understands it, and especially of the Essenes, whom you know Porphyry portrays as a kind of ascetic philosophic brotherhood, not dissimilar from the Pythagoreans of yore, uh, definitely after the hearts of every late antique Platonist. They would have looked at Porphyry's depiction of these guys in the De Abstinentia and thought, God, if everyone could be like that, our troubles would be over. Porphyry has a second main argument, if you want to call it an argument. He makes a lot of arguments drawing on Greek and Roman prejudices about lawful and unlawful practices. So, as we've discussed before in the podcast, the word nomos in Greek means both ancestral custom or just custom, the usages of a given people, 
But then in a period where increasingly there are things like law codes being drawn up, right, the classical period and onwards, it comes to mean law as well. Law in the sense that we would understand it, like someone actually carved something onto a piece of stone and set it up in the agora and said, these are our nomoi, right? So the Christians are being depicted in the fragments we have again and again as being against the laws. Now, because the term nomos is so sort of vague and fluid and quite relativistic, really, this isn't so much an argument as a kind of appeal to people's prejudice, I would say. And you see this, politicians use this all the time, to this day. They'll say things like, our values, these people hate our values, or these people have different values than us without defining anything specific, just our values are different from theirs. And everyone goes, yes, they are different from us. So this is the kind of uh, rhetoric Porphyry is using here about the Christians. They're against the law, basically. Now, the Christians were, from time to time, against the law in the Roman Empire, in, in the sense that an emperor, like Domitian, would pass an edict outlawing Christianity. Porphyry is probably um, aware of these developments, and he's using that as fuel for what he's trying to say. Like, they're really against the law in a kind of literal sense, in the sense that basically what the emperor says in the Dominate is the law. But also, they're just against a kind of vague sense that we all share, all us educated Hellenes, about what is right and proper and the right way of conducting oneself. The Christians go against that stuff. Now, those are the two main thrusts of his arguments against the Christians. Porphyry arguing that they are turncoat Jews and arguing that they are vaguely doing unlawful things, perhaps in unspeakable acts done in private. The sort of insinuations that always come in handy when you are trying to alienate your audience from a minority group. We will see, of course, Orthodox Christians using exactly the same tactics against polytheists. Now, Porphyry also brings esoteric hermeneutics into the fray here, and this is where it really gets interesting to us as historians of Western esotericism. This is weaponized esotericism again. So we are going to look at a passage from Eusebius here, quoting Porphyry against the Christians, translated by Johnson, 2012. And I should say, before I quote this uh, passage, Porphyry here is talking about origin. He's talking about the Christian's use of esoteric reading to try to make some kind of harmonized uh, teaching out of the Jewish scriptures and Christian scriptures. Um, I should also say here that this is the only uh, place where Porphyry seems to be saying something bad about the Jews, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Quote, when certain ones wanted to find a solution— Rather than apostatize from the wickedness of the Jewish scriptures, they turned to exegeses which were disjointed and inappropriate to what was written, and brought not so much a defense, apologia, of the foreign writings, that's the barbaric writings, right? But an approval and praise of their own. For they brought on their interpretations, boasting that the things said openly by Moses were riddles, enigmata, and invoking them as oracles full of hidden mysteries, and through their vanity enchanting kategoeteusantes, the critical faculty of the soul. Now this is a doozy of a quote and has a lot to pick out of it. So 
to conclude this episode, let's just talk about this a little bit. First of all, what are we to make of this anti-Jewish uh, remark, the wickedness of the Jewish scriptures? It does stand out among the rest of Porphyry's writing, and I think Johnson is right in his 2013 study that Porphyry here is sort of echoing Origen. Origen has a bunch of uh, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic stuff in his writing, and um even uses more or less the same phrase, the wickedness of the Jewish scriptures, right? So probably this is Porphyry sort of paraphrasing Origen himself rather than his own thought. Otherwise, we can just say Porphyry's being uh, opportunely anti-Semitic in this quote, in, in his efforts to downgrade the Christians, but it doesn't really fit with the rest of his take on uh, the Jews. They turned to exegeses which were disjointed and made Moses's open statements into enigmata. Now, this is where, although we respect Porphyry as a critical reader, he's blatantly protesting too much because, of course, his own reading of Moses, whom he calls the theologian of the Jews, making him kind of a member of the same exclusive club as Homer and Orpheus belong to, a theologian, of course speaks through enigmata about the, the truths of theology. So Porphyry is doing exactly the same reading of the Jewish scriptures as these Christians are doing, insofar as he's saying there are secret hidden meanings which are not for everybody that Moses intentionally hid, and you have to excavate them to find the true meaning. He's just saying they do that wrongly, and I do it rightly. Okay. Now, this is an argument basically which says that the one who finds the correct esoteric interpretation of the scriptures is the one who has the authority of truth. Um, and this is weaponized esotericism at its finest. Both sides in the argument, because Eusebius and Augustine and many other Christian writers of the early centuries of orthodoxy are going to respond directly to Porphyry's attacks here. And they are going to respond more often than not with simply counterclaims that their esoteric interpretation of the scriptures is right and Porphyry's is not. Now, they tend, and this is true definitely of Augustine, certainly less so of Eusebius, they tend not to refer to esotericism, the use of enigmata, as much as speaking at different levels, different hermeneutical levels, which is an idea that had been pioneered, as we know, by Philo, then carried into Christianity by Clement, and Origen followed Clement in that. So there are distinct levels at which Scripture speaks, usually considered four main levels in the originist school of reading. And one of the problems Christianity had when they decided to reject Origen on the grounds of certain heretical tendencies he had is the fact that they really, really wanted to keep his scriptural hermeneutics because having all these levels makes it possible to construct, well, a coherent whole from a rather messy scriptural canon, namely the Old and New Testaments read together. I mean, the New Testament is, is bad enough, but put in the Old Testament and you're really in trouble. Now, although the rhetoric of esotericism tends to drop out, speaking generally, from certain mainstream Orthodox Christian writers like Augustine, nevertheless, there's a hermeneutical battle going on here, and I hope it's clear where the stakes are. The stakes lie in who has the best interpretation of texts that we all agree, both sides agree, do not say on the surface what we want them to say. <laughs> so this is a classic and wonderful example of weaponized esotericism on the ideological battlefields 
of late antiquity. Now, to see Porphyry's esoteric hermeneutics of Homer in action, we need, of course, to turn to On the Cave of the Nymphs in Homer's Odyssey, which is what we shall do next time. But, as we shall see, Homer is not to be interpreted just through Homer, as the Alexandrian critics had suggested doing, and which Porphyry criticizes Cronius for not doing. No, Homer must be read through lenses as broad as the cult of Mithras, and even the Jewish wisdom of Moses, the theologian of the Jews. Join us next time as we discuss Homer the theologian in On the Cave of the Nymphs, and until then, be like, really, all of this stuff, and uh, stay esoteric. (laughs) 